Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. So I want to put it to you that not many people think about how their conversations are going or think about the quality of their conversations, but this is a medium where every week you can check in with how you're how good you are at having a conversation. And the test is each week putting yourself opposite somebody you've never met before mm. um, and seeing whether you can extract maximum value for the audience, uh, unlock that person and really tell a great story all at once. Great to be back with you here, as always, especially for a milestone episode, The Big 250, where family, friends, and sometimes even ourselves take centre stage. Following our fresh podcast rebrand, we've now updated our promotional package prospectus, which you'll find in our show notes and on our website at humansofpurpose.com. Our promotional packages enable values-aligned people and their organisations to reach our growing audience, translating to over 10,000 episode listens per month in Australia and globally, as well as our growing social media community. Our demographic is primarily 25 to 44-year-olds who are senior leaders in their organisations and more or less based in urban centres across Australia. As part of our social enterprise model, we limit these promotional spots to 10 out of 50 each year to fund the podcast and have just a few spots remaining for the year. You can learn more about this limited opportunity and get in touch via our show notes. As a keen listener, if you want a bit more Humans of Purpose every week, now is a great time to become a member with 30% off our monthly and annual memberships happening until the end of winter. With membership, you'll get every episode ad-free, a bonus audio note on each guest, full transcript of each episode, as well as my top five insights from each episode and more. Check out the link in our show notes to learn more. We are, as always, proud to be sponsored by the great folk at Neon Treehouse, who are still the best digital agency on the planet Earth. Check out our show notes to learn more. This week, I'm thrilled to welcome myself to the podcast. My interviewer this week is a former Humans of Purpose guest and superstar academic Julian Waters-Lynch. Jules had written to me a few times suggesting that he interview me and that my audience might find that interesting. It's taken about two years to convince me of this, and I'll let you be the judge of that hypothesis. The basics on me. I started out as a lawyer before making my way into senior advisory roles in government, mainly in health policy, and then found my way into the for-purpose sector, both as an executive leader and as the founder of my own consultancy and now podcasting company, Purposeful. It's now been about since eight years since I made my way into the for-purpose sector, mainly working in strategy and impact roles, and I'm now seven months into my current role as Head of Strategic Partnerships and Communications at Tech Not For Profit and Social Enterprise Info Exchange. Speaking of which, we are hiring at the moment right now for a couple of great senior roles in my team, so check out the show notes for more on that. This was a lovely chat with Jules, and I've intentionally provided some fairly jagged provocations or risque discussion points, hinting at conversations that I think are a bit under-discussed or intentionally avoided, maybe. Particularly, what is purpose and why does it matter? Is it still relevant in the current climate, or has it been superseded by other motivational drivers or models? I hope you enjoy this conversation with me as much as I hope Jules did. Well, I'm joined by Julian Waters-Lynch in a slightly different uh, <laughs> orientation for today. I'll be the interviewee and the good sir opposite me will be the interviewer. Welcome, Jules. Welcome, buddy. This is fun. Is it? Yeah. So we talked about <laughs> this. I mean, I feel like we, we should let folks in. I mean, we talked about this a couple of years ago, right? I, I, we'd been on the other side of things and I... I think I asked you, look, have you ever done one about you and why you started this and what you're into? And and um, I thought it'd be a nice 200s episode or... 250th. We got to 250, right? Milestone. So congrats, man, 250 episodes in the bag. I feel big, I feel like it's a big achievement. I, I always think about episodes in terms of like AFL games played. Um, so, <laughs> you know, the percentage of people who make it to 250 or 300 is just like exponentially low compared to those who make it to their first 10 or 30. So... Yeah. It is a bit of a stayers long game, but yeah. Um, yeah, I love it. And I do remember our conversations about whether I'd be interested in being interviewed. And I think I vacillated over it for a long time, but I thought 
you know, you're the only person who's regularly asked me more than one time whether I'd like to do it. So when it came down to 250, uh, another milestone app that we reserve for family and friends, um, I thought, oh, I could get Louise to do it, but with little Marlo at home could be a challenge. Um, and when I told her the other night that Jules is actually going to do the interviewing, she was a little bit pissed off. But <laughs> oh, Really? Well, she can be number 300, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There you go, Louise. Yeah. Um, do you remember episode one? Yes, I do. Um, kind of like dark ages. When you think back on where you were that long ago, it was about five years ago and I really didn't know what I was doing. And it's like when you start anything new, you just kind of like impersonate what you think other people are doing. I had my same MacBook actually, but just connected to a couple of dodgy little speakers, front room, beanbags. The beanbags were a terrible idea because, of course, whenever people sat down, they couldn't get up. They were really comfortable, but people just couldn't get up out of them. And <laughs> people with back problems particularly didn't enjoy those first few episodes. Uh, the first episode was Elliot Costello, actually, who's oh. uh, now in the building. He's, he's got a new company. He was um, CEO of YGAP back in the day. Um, and I remember that what I used to do, this is just a horrible practice. I used to, um, you know, you get quite nervous about things and people get very frightened about not thinking or not knowing what they're going to say next. So I would co-design a script with the guest and we would just run through it. Really? So you'd do a whole rehearsal pre... No, nah, not a rehearsal. I would um, I would sort of submit like a list of questions that I'd like to get through in the conversation and then they'd have that list of questions, they'd turn up and I would just go through the questions. Yeah, interesting. It was so boring. What I, I, I want to get to how your thinking has changed and practice has changed, but so this is five years ago, 2017 or so. Yeah, I think what I assumed was that um, people who are podcasters have to pretend they're journalists so or they're in media and communication. So often when you're talking to MPs and stuff, they want you to submit questions in advance for media. Yeah. And I just did that for everyone. And so we'd have these sort of prefabricated conversations and I would just come out of them thinking, God, that was really not satisfying um, for anyone and I think the audience as well. So after a while, um, a big innovation for me was moving away from that so much so that now there's very little preparation at all. Yeah, I noticed that when we did it, I was like, hey, should we talk about what we're going to talk about? And you were like, no, you want a whiskey? You know, (laughs) (laughs) so so that was at the other end. I'm sorry there was no whiskey today in the Commons. Cider's good. Um, What... Let's go back a little bit before you started. So you, you're working, you're interested in the notion of purpose, a kind of purpose economy. Yeah. What made you want to start a podcast? What were you hoping would happen? Yeah, I um, I had a bit of a, I want to, you know, have you heard of the concept of the quarter life crisis? Yeah. So for me, it happened at about 30, so a little bit late. Um, and I feel I like just, I have, I've never left one. I've, I've been a rolling crisis <laughs> from about 25, man. So. Good observation. And uh, but yeah, so I hit mine at 30 when Louise and I, my wife went to New York and took a trip and I was really struggling um, in the public service, the Victorian public service, and just thinking, oh, you know, I've always cared about um, – you know, doing something for the greater good and working in the public interest. And I thought government was my track to sort of future uh, career pathway and success. And um, I realised it just really wasn't the right environment for someone like me who's a bit more of an out-of-the-box creative thinker, very sort of extroverted with people and just likes to think out loud a lot and ideate. Um, so part of that crisis was what's next and, you know, going away in this trip to New York and sort of really exploring what it might be was the next thing. And I kind of just became obsessed with this idea of purpose. And this is in about 2016. A lot of other people turns out had the same idea to become obsessed about purpose. And it became like this big kind of, um, I don't want to say buzzword. It became a concept. It became a well-researched uh, driver of things. Um, it's something that fits within a range of frameworks, both organizationally, psych- psychologically, individually. Um, I became interested in how purpose uh, works with people and in workplaces to drive behaviour change um, and, you know, influence positive behaviours. And I thought, well, there's two ways to do this. When I get back to Melbourne, why don't I start a podcast on purpose and then I can really embed myself in that world and um, speak to people who are purposeful people. Then I also started my um, management consulting uh, firm called Purposeful, where I would actually help companies to um, embrace the power of purpose and to work in that space. Turns out um, like (laughs) it's that whole, um, that selection bias where you think that because something's on your mind, that's on every client's mind. But when I brought that concept home, no one wanted to pay for that. It just wasn't the, the, the bulk of the evidence or the weight of opinion wasn't there yet. It sort of got there maybe last year or the year before. So my idea just came many years too early um, in a sea of other 
bigger firms being able to really progress that idea into frameworks and consulting offerings and whatnot. So I had a bit of fun, did some big projects um, as part of the consultancy and um, the podcast was more of a an idea where I just thought I meet a lot of really interesting people, I have a lot of great conversations and um, so for me it was just like how if I have the opportunity to have a coffee or a conversation with a great person, that that person can't meet everyone for a coffee. Mm. So what if I use that to, to sort of educate and inspire a lot of other people? I would have that conversation and sort of think about what everyone else might want to know and just put it out there um, and make it a thing. So that was kind of the idea, just being in a lot of great conversations with inspiring people and just doing a sort of thought piece from that. So it was also an excuse to connect with people that were working on this, right? To reach out to people you admired, um, yeah. I'm assuming. I would say it's an excuse, but there was no ulterior motive. Right. Um, like it would have been smart to think about how I could um, use it as a funnel for the for the um, consulting. Right. Never actually worked that way. We didn't get any work ever through doing that. So it was more like um, it was a means to an end in itself. So like I'm an inherently very curious person um, and what I realised about the purpose thing is it's not what I was after, it was just an expression of my curiosity. Yeah. What You, you mentioned that you had this epiphany when you were working for the Victorian Public Service mm. that um, you wanted to lean into this idea of purpose, work and purpose. Yeah. And what was it that triggered that? Oh, look, it's probably for me a lack of meaning in my work. So yeah. for me, I just felt like I was um, a cog in a big machine and mm. people in bureaucracies often feel that way. Um, and I just wanted to give back. I wanted to – I didn't want to be somebody who after 30 – I was doing a lot of legacy thinking at the time where you sort mm. of think, you know, tombstone thinking. So what will be inscribed in my tombstone? Pretty dark sort of Ed Gallon Poe type stuff. But, you know, just thinking what do I want to be remembered for? And I thought if I continue down this track – I won't be remembered. I will just be a nobody. Um, so it was really important for me to find what gave me meaning. Um, and conversations, I just think, have this really inherent power to teach us a lot, to provide us with connection, inspiration, um, a different way of thinking about things, different frameworks and mental models, but just to really let our minds expand out into what could be. Mm. Um, and I just felt like, you know, people love listening to conversations, I think. Uh, that's always been my belief. And so I just thought, why don't I just have them and release them in a podcast? Were you a, a an avid fan of podcasts? Were there yeah, podcasters that you, you admired and you were influenced by? Yeah, look, a lot of the, the, the classic sort of um, early big podcasts like Tim Ferriss, um, I always thought had very interesting conversations. Um, Joe Rogan, I always thought, you know, he, he's got – he's been, sort of more recently become a lot more controversial, but back in the day had some very interesting conversations um, I think yeah, James Altucher was another one who's um, just really interesting sort of tech entrepreneur turned podcaster. And I just thought, wow, me listening and being so obsessed with these podcasts, um, I just thought I could do something like this but my way and add, add some value to the space. And I just saw it as a medium where it was so interesting, you know, radio had kind of started to die off and I think it's still dying this incredibly slow, like belaboured death. Um, but podcasts are just booming. Mm. Um, and why is that? You know, what is it about podcasts? And I think um, when my dad was growing up um, in the 60s and 70s, you know, they had these um, radio serial shows that were like detective shows and, you know, long-form interviews and it's basically just a retro throwback to that and a reinvention of that idea that people like to listen to conversations and stories. Yeah, the, the, the serialised stories that they used yeah. to do. I mean, what, I'm I'm struck by that. Like, there's something particularly. I, I find audio quite different to video. You know, if you uh, both on in performing and listening. Like, if I someone puts a camera on and says, "Talk to the camera," it's different to this scenario where I feel a bit more like I'm talking to you. Mm. Right, and it's the same when I listen to things. There's something very intimate about conversation in your your ear. I was saying before we started, there's kind of a dark side too that I find where with the, the, the sort of attention economy today, well, how many damn million podcasts is it two or four that are <laughs> out there and the sort of tech infrastructure of, of um, Bluetooth headphones and stuff. I mean, you can spend a lot of your damn day with a, an AirPod in listening to things if you're when you're not working. or People do it. I, I personally don't know how they do it because I think it's too distracting. Yeah. 
Uh, I like to listen to music or just nothing when I work. Yeah, um, yeah. But I would never listen to a podcast whilst working. I think that's like um, driving whilst texting on your phone. Yeah, I mean, I mean, outside of work, you know, oh, doing yeah, chores, yeah, yeah, yeah. commuting. If people commute, you know, you, you said um, what was interesting is like there's a bit of a kind of um, downside risk to being present if you constantly got a podcast in the ear. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's a broader thing about just the information overload, right? Like yep. we, we just have these things with us that can just fire interesting You're trying to, Everyone is trying to drink from a fire hose yeah. at the moment um, and not many people are doing it well. Yeah. So personally, in terms of my own consumption, maybe this will help as an example. Um, I subscribe to probably 50 podcasts, but what I'll do is I'm interested in all of them. What I'll do is if I have time to listen to a podcast, I'll just see or downloads all of them from that week. Yeah. I'll just see which is the one that I think I want to invest my time in. So I just will pick out of that bunch or mm. a couple out of, out of that bunch. And, you know, there's, you know, <laughs> I think every, I heard a stat like every hour there is um, more content um, than you could possibly ever uh, watch in a lifetime, in a lifetime uploaded yeah. to YouTube. And it's <laughs> just, you know, like you, you, can, you can never – and like you can't finish Netflix, for example. Yeah. So it's like, what do you choose to invest your time in? And I'm often just take a pretty critical lens and think, what am I going to learn from this, or what what might I learn? It's interesting when you think about for most of evolutionary scale human history, you know, a couple of hundred thousand years or so. I mean, information about other people was relatively hard to come by, right? You you knew the people that you interacted with in your tribal band, and we've flipped the the, the sort of scarcity to abundance of that. Yep. Oh, sorry, knock the mic. There's this notion of super stimuli, things that we wouldn't have encountered naturally, uh, but when we see them now, you know, or historically we wouldn't have encountered them, they sort of totally grab our attention, grab our mind, pornography and things like this, right, sugar, the levels of sugar in food. And I think there is a dynamic with the information economy that's like that, right? You can just scroll through Instagram or something. Um, but anyway, that, that's a whole nother podcast. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you're talking really about the neurochemistry uh, associated with the attention economy. Yeah. Um, sort of how do we, you know, get people busting out those essential chemicals in their brain uh, without them knowing that addict them to doing certain things. And also the, the context that we operate in, it's just everywhere now. So everywhere that you interact is trying to suck your attention into it and mm. that, that's monetized. So, you know, humans are purpose is deliberately trying to be a bit different. I mean, we think we're offering a really valuable, refreshing form of um, information. Yeah. And I think really um, this is where news has a lot to answer for, how far it's fallen as a source of credible, um, interesting information. Yeah, there's a kind of race to the bottom, right? And um, yeah. But coming back to – so episode one five years ago, mm. episode 250 today mm. – um, What's kept you doing it? Because many podcasts sit like the blogs of, you know, the year 2000, right? They yep. have three episodes and then they're like tumbleweeds. Yeah. Um, I've always been uh, a persistent person. I'm also quite stubborn. So if I decide to do something, I like to get better at it. Um, and even if I can't be great, like I'm, I'm never going to be Tim Ferriss or anyone like that. I don't want to be. But I'd like to think that I can get better and better at this as I go along till I kind of hit peak you know, Mike, in terms of the, the podcaster modality. So I don't think I've hit peak Mike yet, but I think around episode 300 I will. Well, so, Louise, look out, right? Yeah. You know. So I think, you know, it, it's I review things every six months in terms of what I want to keep doing and stop doing, mm. um, and I'll continue to do that. But um, with the podcast for sure, I mean, you know, you can only – you can only do this for so long until it's not a matter of how good you get at it, but um, it's a matter of how interested you can still be in doing the same thing mm. or do you want to do the same thing a different way or do you want to do a new thing altogether? And so I've got some ideas about what I might do next, but I guess the answer would be that um, for about 150 of the 250 episodes, I don't think I was very good at all at this and now I think I'm just okay at it. Mm. So it, it's a really long, um, slow improvement arc, but I like that. I like the idea of incrementalism, sort of slow 1% on 1% on 1% leads to a lot of improvement. Mm. Yeah, this is quite Tim Ferriss. Yeah. Why don't you break down the craft a little bit? Because it sounds like yeah. you're one, of the th- one of the things that's motivating and interesting is seeing an improvement in a craft. Yeah, right? absolutely. And for, I mean, people on one level – people know what conversation's like yep. and they know what it is to listen to or be part of a good conversation. Well, let me, let me just stop you there. So how many people do you think have actually thought about what makes a good conversation? Like, you know, from a kind of analytical standpoint. 
That was a great dinner. So great. Wait, where'd you park the car? Oh, the one I just sold at Carvana. What? When did you do that? When you were still looking at the menu. I went on Carvana.com and all I had to do was enter the license plate or VIN, answer a few questions, and got a real offer in seconds. They picked up the car already? No, I parked around the corner. But they are picking it up tomorrow and paying me right on the spot. Oh, no wonder you picked up the check. Yeah, about that. Uh, thought we were going halfsies. Sell your car to Carvana. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to get a real offer in seconds. I don't know. I mean, I would imagine it's very few. Yeah. So I want to put it to you that not many people think about how their conversations are going or think about the quality of their conversations. But this is a medium where every week you can check in with how you how good you are at having a conversation. And the test is each week putting yourself opposite somebody you've never met before mm. um, and seeing whether you can extract maximum value for the audience, uh, unlock that person, and really tell a great story all at once. And I love the challenge of that. That's quite addictive. And it's made me better at life. Um, when you're put into a situation and you don't have all the information, you have no information, and you have to sort of navigate your way through to coming up with something special in the moment. Um, it's a thing that not many people have figured out how to kind of simulate or get good at. And like, for example, now I work in partnerships, so we're always in situations where we don't know the answers or don't know the right things to say. We're trying to, you know, work with partners to find alignment, which is really hard. But having conversations with people you don't know who are in fairly senior roles and quite influential um, is pretty much for me the ultimate intellectual test, uh, but also the test of how good you are at relating and conversing with other humans. So what is, you set up that nicely, right? So the first step is actually thinking about what makes a great conversation. Yeah. but break it down a little bit more. So what does make a good conversation and what are the things that people can do to get better at that? Well, I sort of set you up there a bit. So, I mean, having thought about it for a long time, my formula is wisdom, experience and banter um, in equal measure or about that. Uh, so, <laughs> so do you bring what? the wisdom? Do they bring the, you bring the banter? No, well, it's up to both of us. So yeah. it's, a, it's a dance. So conversation is a dance um, and we both have to manufacture that together and that, that's the beauty of it. So... I'm leading the dance usually, Uh, so it's my job to guide the person into that space, that Mm -hmm. zone of comfort where we can get all those three things. You don't always get um, an equal measure. Sometimes you get all experience, no wisdom. Sometimes you get good banter, bit of experience, um, bit of wisdom. Sometimes you get all wisdom, uh, no banter. So I've had all kinds, but I think the ones that sort of stand out for me as the most enjoyable have a bit of those three things. Mm. The other thing to say is – just around thinking about what is the limit of the human ability to concentrate on things. So I just use myself as that N equals one kind of example. I I can't really focus for more than 45 minutes on anything. So I just inherently thought a 45-minute conversation is really what I'm prepared to put on audio. And it turns out that that is a really good sweet spot. Um, So figuring out that 45 minutes is the ideal length of a conversation was really hard to figure out. It's it's taken a long time. So you kind of use all this data. You you kind of have a hunch and you're testing, you're hypothesizing, and then you're kind of refining your beliefs and Mm. changing things and testing. And that's just sort of where I've landed after 150. What about the journey from where you began with a long list of questions and kind of journalist, faux journalist like interview, right? Uh, to the place yeah. where you say, oh, have a glass of have whiskey. whiskey. Yeah, <laughs> just drink instead and don't bother. Uh, look, look, for that, for me, it was just sort of thinking, being reflective. And I've always been a pretty um, reflective person. I do think a lot about myself and what I'm doing and try and be quite self-aware. Yeah. Um, and I just realised, Mike, what the hell are you doing? You, you know, you're not a journalist. Why are you pretending to be one? So that might not be what people want. So yeah why don't you just stop doing that and try something else? So I slowly began to wean myself off the um, shared questions and into a space of more, here are some bullet points for discussion topics I think would work well for this episode. Mm -hmm. Do you like them? Would you like to add anything? You know, is there anything that's missing here? So that kind of thing. Um, And then progressively, you know, into that space of if we didn't do that, um, what are the things that I need to know to help me steer a good conversation? And, you know, there, there are people out there who are really good at this who never did any preparation at all. Like Larry King, quite famously, never prepared for any of his inter- interviews at all. He would just sort of go with the flow and through the conversation, he mm. wouldn't know where to steer it. So there's no – people have this belief that, you know, you must have to spend hours preparing for each episode. But um, 
I've got a rule that I don't spend any longer than 15 minutes because I just don't, first of all, um, I don't make money from the podcast. Uh, all the money that's made, which is minute, uh, goes toward just recovering the cost of making it. Mm. Um, and second of all, you know, I have a day job that's very demanding. So for me, I only allocate myself three hours a week to do this mm. podcast. Mm. Um, so th- there are kind of limitations that you have to place on it to manage your time well, um, and I'm really strict on myself with that. So, you know, but also the thing is, as you keep doing something over and over, the time it takes to do it reduces. Yeah, you get better at it. And, it, and it's curve. very rewarding because, you know, for me, I just say to Louise now, I need, um, once I've got the conversation on the um, SD card, it's probably 45 minute turnaround to having it ready to distribute and mm. you know, push out. Mm. It used to take me a day. Mm. So, you know, that's really, to see the improvement arc is exciting. I think what's interesting for me is, is there's probably, there's probably common principles that make for a great conversation, a great podcast. But I also know as a fan of the medium, there's a personality dynamic that means some people can approach it very differently. Like if I contrast someone like Rogan, who doesn't even seem to know what the guests have done half the time, like it's, you know, but I'm impressed at that, right? You can knock out a two hour podcast and he clearly hasn't read the book. And there's a, there's a brilliance in just the, um, innocent curiosity of the questions. Yeah. You know? but the other thing to say, he's a he's a hundred times millionaire over over and over. So he, he has the luxury of time where he can read the books and do all this research and has Jamie there helping him. And, yeah. you know, so but my point is he doesn't, right? Like he, he, does, sometimes, he sometimes, yeah, sometimes does. Sometimes. Maybe, maybe he doesn't a lot of the time. But, um, you know, like I just don't – I don't think – I'm not of the opinion that you need to have read – like you don't need to know everything about someone to have no, a good conversation with No, them. no, no, but I just wanted to set up a contrast with someone like him compared to say someone like Sam Harris who yep. seems to have a freakishly – good understanding of someone's work a lot of the time. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. The two very different models. Very different models. Yeah. My theory is sort of neither. It's more that um, what people really tune in for is um, learning about the guests. So I try and choose the guests really deliberately. Yeah. So our model, how it's a bit different is that um, you can't actually ask to be on Humans of Purpose. I spend the time that I spend out of that three or four hours is I go out and find people that I find interesting. So when I have a conversation with them, you're getting me at my most curious, excited and interested. And I think that's what people quite like, the enthusiasm, the kind of exploration, the like I'm legitimately pumped every time I have a conversation. Is that is that a tip if people are listening? Like if somebody asks to be on, does that mean they never get on? Or they can look, they can, we have one of, uh, we have 10 opportunities a year now out of 50 uh, sort of have, social enterprise model where people can pay to come on. Right. Um, and that's an opportunity that we put out there to help us support the running of the podcast. Mm. But, um, yeah, I mean, I still get a lot of people asking. We, we have on our website a little sort of thing that says you can't, you don't, can't don't, don't, don't ask. <laughs> don't ask because, you know, you, you, you'll be chosen if we want you. Yeah, yeah, um, nice. But, yeah, I think that's part of it really. I mean, I think that's a sort of a quiet part of the success has been just that um, when people tune in, they know that I'm curate. It's, it's a curation by me. So it's not just the production, it's the curation. Yeah. So they're listening to a season of people who I think are really doing great mm. things and they trust my knowledge of the sector probably. Mm. And I think they're, they're entitled to trust that knowledge because it's a space I've worked in for you know eight years now and um, really very heavily networked in the space. I kind of know who's doing yeah. what and um, it's where my home is. Mm. So I think there's part of that is that kind of knowing um, who to choose and how to, how to do it. Yeah. Let's um, step back from the, the art and science of podcasting and think about your career and your relationship to this idea of purpose over yeah. time. Yeah, it's a good you, one. You made a point that you – this is a small part of your week, right, even though publicly so – like 3%. Like I know, I know you from this. I, I haven't kept up with what you're doing for work now, right? Yeah, no one knows what I do for work. <laughs> People think this is my job and this is the weirdest thing. Like it's – I don't know anyone who has something they do for such a small percentage of their week – like think that that's what they do full time and not know their actual job. It's usually the other other way around. What are you doing? (laughs) So yeah, like it's been a journey. I mean, I found myself after the government experience and and whatnot, I um, entered the not-for-profit space and I haven't really looked back. I've sort of loved it. So I spent um, four and a bit years at a place called Task Force in the Southeast doing um, head of strategy and impact role, um, organisational strategy work, impact measurement and evaluation, and really working with – them to just grow and scale and you know do the, do a lot of the partnership stuff. So 
when I started there in, in 27, early 2017, it was a small $4 million, 40-person organisation. When I left a couple of years later, it's 120 people and about a $13 million organisation. So mm. doing those kind of strategic growth pieces plus impact and partnerships was really fun and I just really enjoyed that work. So after that, um, I thought, wouldn't it be interesting if I tried my hand at um, doing consulting in a consulting firm? Because I you know, was essentially an insourced consultant mm. and I'd run my own consulting business as well. Um, so I joined a, a place called Spark Strategy, which was good fun. So I was there for a year. Um, they're a B Corp and just doing consulting to other not-for-profits and leadership teams um, in, the, in that kind of sector and broader, broader sectors as well. And that was fun. And, and then after that, um, I just thought, you know, like, I'm definitely not a person who's meant to be a consultant, like that idea of billing time and just, you know, under the pump to either be selling or delivering was just really challenging for me. So, um, yeah, I wanted to go back in-house to a larger not-for-profit to do the work I was sort of doing before and um, I was very lucky to have the opportunity to join Info Exchange, which is, um, yeah, it's one of the probably the biggest social enterprises in Australia in the tech and not-for-profit space. So technology for social justice is the platform and they do something like 70% of the client and case management systems um, in Australia um, for organisations helping people. Um, and there's a real mission there around social justice and reducing disadvantage that resonates with me. Mm. Um, so I have taken this uh, head of partnerships, uh, strategic partnerships and Mark Holmes role but it's nice and broad. I've got a team of about nine. Um, we're doing a mix of marketing communications, social media, um, government relations, PR, um, an event, an annual conference, um, and then there's all the other uh, cross-sectoral partnership stuff. Mm. So I love doing that. I've been there for six months. Um, but as I said with, to you before, you know, I think it's important to sort of evaluate what you're doing every six months and think about how many balls you've got in the air because if you've got too many, you know, I experienced it once, you're going to drop them all and, you know. You only you, juggle you're, so many. Yeah, you're going to wake up one day and just re- think I'm really shit at everything I'm trying to do, yeah, um, yeah. which happened to me in 2019. So, um, you know, I'm quite deliberate about what I do now. I've sort of stepped back from a couple of boards that I was on, um, had my son Marlo, which is, you know, just the best thing ever. So Marlo's six months, did you say? Six weeks. Six, yeah. six weeks, yeah. right. Wow. He's a little guy. Holy moly. Okay. Yeah. So, so this is fresh. This very is fresh. your journey as a dad. Yeah. Um, the journey of the dad has just really begun. So it's been, you know, a long time coming. But, um, yeah, I feel very chuffed to have had this opportunity to be moly. a dad. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. I'm happy to. Yeah. I'm a dad too. I've got a seven-year-old. Um, Yours a little bit more advanced than mine, it sounds like. Well, yeah, there's different ways of being advanced, right? <laughs> She's older. Um, well, mine, mine just, um, you know, shits a lot, sleeps and doesn't spend <laughs> much time conscious. So I, I reckon you've got the uh, chocolates there. Yeah, well, they're cute, they're cute and simple in the, the first six months. How's yeah. the sleeping going? Uh, not good. Uh, okay, variable. Um, yeah, look, sleep, I've never been a great sleeper. I guess in a way that makes me lucky and prepared in a way for parenthood. So um, what, I, what I find actually the biggest challenge is, is just like how do you – how do you find space for yourself when you have a day job, you have a podcast like this, and then you have a son and you've got to support, you know, your wife has taken a couple of months off. She's at home with Marlo. So like I go home and I just change hats from work to dad. And then there's all the time that I used to have for myself um, that I think about now longingly, it's just gone. I think that, that I still remember that change. It's the most dramatic one that I think is difficult to explain to yeah. Pre and post, like sort of BCAD, right? I used to just basically design my night however I wanted yeah. it to be, and now it's the complete opposite. Like Marlo designs my night. Yeah, yeah. Um, and whatever designs you have, you go out, and yeah. then there's also the whole partner dynamic changes because totally. you're suddenly project managing this yep. caregiving things. So. You're like involuntary partners in a business venture that exactly. you decided to embark on. Yeah, yeah. And it, I mean, it's, I'm conscious. Uh, like the audience will be so split. There'll be people listening to us that have four kids going, you guys don't know what the you yeah, know, like. That's fine. We're, we're, we're a sample of two. Yeah, know? yeah. And then there's people that haven't had kids at all or thinking about it yeah. that maybe it's interesting to hear this stuff. I remember um, it was probably four or five weeks after Ifa was born and I think I went for a run the first time and it just felt like the most – and this is like 20-minute run, right? It felt like the most luxurious oh, yeah. self – Just um, the little things. Like care, what's the word? Self-care. 
Yeah, well, not even that good. I just mean I, f- I felt like I was splurging on a holiday, you know what I mean? Because <laughs> yeah. I just I, it was the first time I realized I'd done anything that wasn't, oh, my God, we need shopping, we need nappies, yep. we need, oh, my God, I'm cleaning up this, or yep. you're trying to support your partner that's yep. been breastfeeding yep. six times. In the, you yeah, know. yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, there's, I mean, there's two dynamics, right? There's becoming a parent and then there's the, the gender role stuff, you know, there's yeah. certain things you can't do as, yeah, as a man. I mean, there's something I want to say about all this. I mean, uh, I sort of feel like this is this may be an unpopular view and maybe it's just biological and I should get over it and, you know, I'm a privileged white male, blah, blah, blah. But um, I actually found it quite challenging, the pregnancy process up until birth, feeling a bit excluded and sort of not connected or treated as sort of part of that process. Mm, that's interesting. Um, yeah, we went through IVF, which was a different journey as well. But um, I can't help but say that, you know, we'd go to these appointments and ultrasounds and everything and you're there as a support, but you're also the, you know, half of the equation, right. but you, you kind of don't get addressed or at all. So I'd, I'd often rock up to these ultrasound appointments and they'd say, oh, hi, um, Mrs. Uh, Davis or Louise, uh, good to see you. And that just wouldn't so that's interesting. Wouldn't greet me. Wow. Wouldn't really refer you, to me or ask my opinion on anything. You're the driver, the yeah, designated driver. Pretty much. For that. But you're you, you're not included in really a lot of the that stuff. Even the visits with a specialist and whatnot. Yeah. But you're there all the time supporting your partner. So mm. there's kind of like this um, dissonance between the role that you play and your involvement mm. that kind of maybe hasn't caught up yet. That's interesting. I we we didn't experience that so much. I, I remember it more just in rituals. Like we we had a um what do you call it like not a baby shower but like a women's sort of birth birthing thing where yeah. a bunch of Hannah's friends came over. Yeah, it was a lovely, baby shower, right? isn't it? Well, I don't think the baby was born. I think it oh, was, it was before. you know it was pre yep. where they do stuff you know yep. right on the belly and yeah, and it was yeah. lovely. And but I just kind of remember thinking I don't know what to do. Like, yeah. I don't just, you know what I mean? like I didn't have a kind of I had the same hey course. let's go and and I had actually like a I remember like a, my final night out dinner was like. Right. <laughs> I didn't know what guys did, so I just thought, what would I like to do before I have my first child? Yeah, yeah, because there's there's the vestige of blokey sort of rituals. I don't know. You guys got married, right? So there's bucks bucks things, but they're often – they can be things that perhaps you and I wouldn't want to participate in. But I certainly remember at that time there was – I didn't have any model of do I – I think I went and had a coffee with my dad, which was kind of nice in the end. Yeah. so there was an absence there. I, I didn't feel explicit. Well, the ritual side for the guy just it doesn't exist, right? Like the, and, you know, or there not is no constructive, guy, baby healthy shower. ones. No. Yeah, like this sort of stuff. The right? Baby shower is like a, a bit male exclusionary in a way. And like, it's not to say it's it's not legitimate. It's a great thing, but like, um, just that that space around what are, what is the guy supposed to do mm. during this, or the partner supposed to do during this period? Yeah, um, it, it's it's really interesting because I feel like um, it's kind of a bit of a taboo space to even enter. Well, I'm feeling it now. I'm like, oh, no, yeah. are we going into the, you know, who's really oppressed today? It's the white men. <laughs> That's, We're not, not saying that at all. It's not a question of oppression. Yeah. It's, it's just more like um, there's an open space here. An open space. That where no one you, is talking about. Yeah. The way I think of it is um, there's new, j- just as there's been so much development in, uh, well, it seems to me, women's culture in a great way yeah. for, over the last 40, 50 years, right? But sometimes there hasn't been this compensatory change in, Uh, I I think of it as a healthy, constructive male culture. Well, I mean, let's sort of think about it this way. So my dad um, never changed a nappy. Right. Um, But, you know, I'm there all the time changing nappies and just sort of part of the role. So expectations change, gender roles change, but, um, you know, whereas I'm sure my dad didn't know much about baby showers back then, we still <laughs> we play a much bigger role now, but yep. we still don't have any kind of our own mm. involvement or mm. what, like, even talking to guys about stuff has always been interesting for me around, um, you know, talking to my close friends about the challenges of getting pregnant, um, infertility, um, finally getting pregnant through IVF, um, the the anxiety that you feel for the entire nine months of the pregnancy and in its different phases and milestones. So not a lot of space for um, male conversation there. Mm. Um, how, how long was that period for you, if you, mm. if you don't mind talking about it? But I guess there's a point where you Before decide... getting IVF. Well, there's a point where you decide we want to start a family, right? Yep. And then there's the ups and downs. For some people it happened. It, for me, it, I wish it had been longer. Yeah, <laughs> it was just yeah, like, yeah, yeah. It was, you know, a, a steamy summer and that was it where she was pregnant, right? Yeah. Um, so that's the – I think that's the like – I would call that the privileged version of events. That, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't feel um, – but people have very different journeys around this. Totally. Um, I mean we – so, I, I, you know, you've also both got to – presuming it doesn't just happen, there's like presumably some kind of discussion around when you're both ready also. Yeah. And I happen to be a lot 
earlier ready than my wife because yeah. of her career and age as well. And so, you know, um, probably we had Marlowe a few years later than I would have liked. Mm. But then there's this kind of weird expectation that you get that it's just going to happen. Like, mm. And so we thought that, but it didn't. And then who do you talk to about that and how do you kind of navigate that as a male and men? Um, you know, I think men find it really hard to be vulnerable and talk about things that make them feel insecure about who they are. Mm. So I struggled a lot with, you know, initially overcoming that feeling of stigma and shame mm. um, of, of not being able to um, get Louise pregnant naturally. And um, I think, you know, through learning about my friends and my own circumstances a bit more and just being a bit more open, sort of came to realise that about, you know, 35 or 40% of my friends had also had their babies through IVF. Wow. Um, so you kind of have to put yourself out there in yeah. these uncomfortable spaces and just listen to what comes back. Yeah, I've, I've different uh, topic but similar thing on the, the commonness of miscarriages, right? Yes. And it's, it's yeah. something that I'm not even sure why it is taboo to talk about. I appreciate if people don't want to. Yeah. Um, that's totally fine. But It seems some, inherently very unhealthy to not talk about something traumatic like that. Because then when it happens, you're like, oh, my God, is there something wrong with us? Or yeah. and But the more I've spoken about these things, the more I realise, oh, yeah, this two or three times this happened. And I, I think a lot of us, I mean, on one level there's a lot of open in, information today, but most of us, we approach this pretty naively the first time, right? Yeah. Yep. I don't know how often you talked about these things before you never, had kids. Never, I mean, so this yeah. is part of the problem is that there's no advanced education about the real, the reality of the process of childbirth and yeah. the challenges, you know, what might happen. I think people just mainly have like this romantic notion that it'll just happen for people. Yeah. And for a lot of people, that is the story. And so it gets perpetuated. And, you know, like with the social media and the kind of public image age we live in today, um, if you only ever hear the positive side of pregnancy, um, mm. you'll think that that's the whole story, the norm. and then right. I'm different. Um, there's something wrong with me. I should feel ashamed, um, and I'm going to internalize that pain. Yeah. What so, about career stuff for you guys? So Louise works in the medical field, right? Yeah, she's in cardiology. She's yeah. doing a PhD at the moment, um, and I think it's been hard for her to sort of take a step back in terms of staying home with Marlo for a couple of months and yeah. sort of going part time. You know, she'll she'll be going part time soon in a couple of months, and. Um, she'll be happy, I think, to get back to work. But there is this real thing. I mean, I think I read in the age today that it takes, um, you know, the uh, mothers, um, like, I think they go back to like half or two thirds of their wage. And then it takes them like five to 10 years to recover to earn what they were earning before. Well, it's often hugely consequential. Yeah, on that, right? it's a big, it's like a big career setback, yeah. uh, which is just bizarre, because the experience of a male going on paternity leave is just so different. It's mm. like, um, you know, it's also ties into sort of government policy a bit and stuff, but it's like, all right, um, you don't have to come back for two weeks and then you just resume what you're doing before. Mm. <laughs> How different is that from the female experience? Completely. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the major factors, but it's also, it, it's a challenging one, right? Yep. It's not, it's not purely a product of discrimination. Like no. there's, a, there's a biological dynamic to this that's, that's hard to get around. Um, but we also have to recognise that, you know, that other countries do things differently yeah. and that changes um, how people perceive the journey. So, yeah. you know, if you if you grow up in Scandinavia, um, you might expect that you will be home for the first two years of your yeah. son's life. Yeah. Well, they often lead the way on these things, yeah. right? Yeah. I think, I, I mean, in our case, the thing that happened with us is, so Aoife is autistic, right? And we, so she's needed very intense care and it's it's meant that our relationship has become much more almost old school polarized you know yep. Han does the, a lot of the care work during the week and I basically do you know most of the paid work um and that wasn't something we intended prior it was just circumstantial it's yep. like well how are we going to solve how are we going to address this yep. problem but w- what has that meant for you guys in terms of thinking about um, like presumably Louise had a, a good career and, and good income and everything. yeah so she's she's um She's definitely the number one banana, <laughs> as I call her. She's the trailblazer. She's the great mind. You know, I'm just a passenger in this uh, relationship in terms of, you know, like um, career contribution. Yeah. I think I'm a pretty good second banana, but she's the number one banana. Um, and, you know, I want her to, you know, be able to lean into that. Yeah. So, you know, we have a lot of conversations about what does that look like. We both want to have careers and we both want to have kids as well. Mm. Um, I think it's less complicated with the first because you get them to childcare, then you can both kind of do your own thing and yeah. it works. But when we have the second, if we do have a second, then it'll be kind of that um, 
thing around, you know, um, maybe it'll shift. Maybe, maybe I'll take some time to just mm. be the stay at home and she will continue to be the major breadwinner. Mm. So we, we have like a, um, I think quite a good open relationship in terms of how we discuss stuff like this. We don't see it as static or roles. We sort of see it as how will the next few months play out and how mm. will we plan for it. Like right now, my job is quite good. Um, I'm looked after very well um, and she's on a PhD, so she isn't. Yeah. Um, her work is very meaningful, and you know, you know, from academia yourself that the value of doing that kind of work, but it's not well compensated. So it makes sense for her to take a break and be at home with a bub for the, for the next few months. Mm. But then we'll reevaluate. Like who knows where I'll be in a year or two years and where we'll be at. Are more kids uh, plan or part of the plan or are you waiting and seeing Look, I think, point? you know, Lou comes from a family of three. I come from a family of two. I think we'd like two. We've always discussed two, but we'll see what happens. Yeah. I mean, you know, we live in an age where I talk to a lot of people now and I'm not sure if you've had the same experience where kids just are not um, – like that people are just deciding to not have kids. It is interesting. Yeah. I mean, what, what's your take on – on this, I mean, families are getting smaller. We look at certain countries, yeah. Japan, Italy. Look, look, I think procreation is inherently quite a selfish act. Um, it, it's an evolutionary uh, self-determinism. So it's sort of saying, you know, I want to continue my family line. So, you know, as a male, that's very much, I think, part of it, whether we choose to admit that or not. But I can say that for myself, um, when I had my son Marlo six weeks ago at age 38, I sort of felt a bit like, okay, you've actually achieved something. You can relax a bit. Yeah. Um, I had this really strange feeling of you've continued your – you've done your genetic duty to procreate. <laughs> you can now just – the pressure's off of it. Yeah. The, 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 That's the a DNA weird statement, happy, right? right? That's a bizarre thing to say about your own human condition. But, um, yeah, I mean, hearing other people not be interested in that I think is really refreshing and interesting. Um, and I think it's becoming actually – because climate change and all these other things and, you know, overcrowded population and um, carbon emissions and just the sustainability of how we live are so front of mind at the moment. Um, it makes me feel a little bit less progressive than I'd like, like I'm not in touch with where, you know, the discourse is at. Um, but, yeah, I, I just think it's a di- there are different perspectives on everything, you know. Yeah. How do, how do you think about it? Uh I don't think overpopulation is. I mean, you know, you, you got to be careful invoking Elon Musk these days, right? But I, I've become more persuaded of that view, not because of him, that overpopulation won't be such an issue. When, when I've looked at the UN kind yep. of modelling and stuff, um, I think partly because of this fairly natural uh, seeming uh, curve that, that diminishes as look at uh, Japan, for example. Yeah, as societies become more wealthy, yep. as women become more educated in societies, we see a clear dropping yep. of the birth rate. Um, and I, I think there's a look how things look towards the end of this century are very interesting in terms of age bulges, population, like lifespan extension. Yep. There's just yep. a lot of questions around how will um, how labor and and work will happen and tax base, etc. So, yeah, I mean, our, our things we would have liked to have more kids, but there's there's this we feel it more in terms of the housing situation. Yeah, you know, you're starting to think. I mean, part of it is a, a kind of the expectation that we have now on what you're going to be able to offer a kid, right? We, yeah. I mean, you go back 50 years and then with six kids and yeah. <laughs> in yeah. a three-bedroom house, yep. right? And, yep. um, All went to public and, school and it's just fine. You just got by. Yeah, yeah. But you're sort of thinking, well, how do I you – know, we don't have another room and we, our car can't fit you know, another two kids or something. So it's a very economic lens to the decision-making. There's a lot more, right, yeah. um, on it. And so it's these two things coming together. I, I certainly think some people are taking that, they have a very pessimistic view around climate change, the environment, overpopulation, and then there's another cohort I assume that it's a sort of uh, cost of living, a sense of the expense, the yep. concern about the stability of the future, all of that. I think it's okay to be both part of the problem and part of the solution. So yeah. we can be responsible people but also have kids. Yeah, um, yeah, so totally. we can choose to try and live more responsibly every day, which I think everyone should, Yeah, whether it's us deciding that we want to reuse um, coffee cups or water vessels instead of uh, plastic bottles, whether we want to um, try and save up for an electric car or we want a bike ride to work. We, we have a myriad out of choices we can make, even working in a, a co-work space is, you know, it's a lot better than having your own office. So, you know, you, you can make choices um, that reduce your impact every day. Um, yeah. I, well, and this is a nice way to come back to the question of how your perception of purpose has shifted. Yeah. So we, we go yeah. back five years, 2017. Yeah. 
bit before that you're thinking, well, I really want to be connected to work that's meaningful, yeah. that's purpose-driven. I want to connect with other people and have conversations with yeah. them. How, how has your thoughts changed on this if they have? Um, so the interesting thing that's changed my thoughts in particular on this is I think purpose is an intrinsic motivator of why people might do things in the workplace or generally. It's a feeling that you have inside you that is rewarding, that makes you feel good for doing something that may be altruistic. Uh, altruism and purpose are inherently linked the same way that meaning and purpose are linked. So um, there is that internal reward system. You feel like you're living out your kind of your calling or your raison d'etre or, yeah. you know, whatever it might be. So that's why you will do things. Um, if you look at that kind of in the midst of an environment that's um, is economically uh, destroyed and kind of broken and, you know, pandemic-ridden and labour shortages and all, you know, budget gaps and the way things are at the moment, cost of living pressures are sky high, there's an interesting point at which purpose doesn't become um, as as motivating for people or as, mm. as beneficial as just show me the money. Um, so, and I think we're actually approaching that point now where you can see that when, like inherently, if you think about it right, you should be paid more for doing something which benefits society. Uh, there should be a, like a premium to altruism, but in the in effect in the workforce, there's a discount. Mm. So if I take a job in a social enterprise or a not-for-profit, I'm probably penalised about 10 to 15% on market as what I could get in a corporate. That's weird as a starting point. What happens when all the people who have in an inbuilt inherent desire to do good and are purpose-driven or altruistic who are doing these jobs can no longer afford to do these jobs because of the external environment has made that gap bigger? So it's a candidate's recruitment market right now, great resignation. Um, people are having money thrown at them to change jobs and, you know, change into sectors that are maybe less altruistic and meaningful. I just have sort of reached a point where I believe that there's um, a bit of a, a situation where purpose kind of, it matters, but there might be a point at which it doesn't matter as much as just money. You mean? For people in terms of how they make decisions. Yeah, and, and that's something that's changed and you're thinking, yeah. you didn't think that initially. I, did, I didn't thought, think that. I actually, yeah. I always had a firm view that um, people overall will do better when they're acting purposefully yeah. and acting with purpose being a sort of primary core motivating factor. I now can't comfortably say that your well-being um, as a person will be optimised by just doing that you'll also have to balance that with your kind of discount that you're having to take by not thinking about the extrinsic motivators like money and life circumstances. Mm. And that's very much the result. That, that's a that's a uh, consequence of the times we live in now. Mm. Um, it's very much a current thing. I'd say, you know, post-March 2020 view of the world that purpose just isn't enough. It's, it's big and it matters and it is inherently very important. But... Um, we cannot um, change behaviour with purpose alone anymore and we cannot expect people to just focus on purpose. Mm. And you see this with a lot of other things as well, you know, um, look at um, social enterprise markets and product and, you know, it's gone from a real focus on how much impact things are having to really um, tighter margins and product quality superiority. Mm. So if there is a better product at the same price, um, you know, you're going you're gonna to flip to that and it won't matter whether it's a social enterprise or not necessarily. How do you – it seems to me there's companies or there's social enterprise and nonprofits that advertise that they're all about impact and doing good, but you sound like you've had a positive experience in that sector. What, what I noticed when I worked in the sector, it's going back 15 years, is I, I thought it would be full of people driven intrinsically by – but I also saw a lot of people that were kind of careerists and, you know, the the um, the bad incentives in some ways sometimes with nonprofits of yeah. focusing on marketing and rather than delivering impact and yeah. all of that. So there's that. And then there's companies that don't necessarily say they're like if I go historically, some of the things that have really lifted human well-being are things like putting sewage systems in cities, yeah. right? Inventing electricity, mm -hmm. like, and they they haven't necessarily been driven by um, a conscious uh, altruistic effort. Yeah, it's but like, now there's a the, the difference would be that those companies now in today's market would be a B Corp or a social enterprise because there's that market premium to doing that. 
Yeah, so you're saying there's an advantage there's to still talk about it in those terms. Yeah, yeah marketing premium yeah. to badging up as a purpose-driven organisation and that will always um, exist. But I'm just saying that the value of that premium has gone down a lot right. in the current climate. So, you know, for me, I still will think very carefully about the clothes that I buy and where I'm, you know, like all birds in Patagonia, I'm like a typical co-work space uh, drongo. But, um, you know, I do think about that stuff and I think it matters. But um, the fact is that, a lot of these brands are selling stuff that are way too expensive for me to own now. Yeah. Like um, the prices of some of these um, B Corps, how they sell things. I mean, they're, they're really good products, but they're also way too expensive. Yeah. So I, my, my choice to be ethical or altruistic, I can't afford to make that choice in this market. But uh, is, is that part of that, do you think, because it's ta- it, it, there's a kind of luxury market segment, right? Yeah. That, that has the, I don't want to talk negatively, that has the ability to think in these terms, but also. Um, signal it to other others, yep. right? Like yep. There's a premium to saying, "Well, I've got this kind of thing." Yeah, um, that, that's interesting. So that's the way you've changed it. It sounds like you're not troubled by anything you've seen in the nonprofit or third sector necessarily. No, look, I think people have a lot of. There's a lot of negative talk and perceptions of um, you know not for profits and having marketing departments and all this and all that. Look, not for profits uh, are essentially. Um, businesses that are responsible to multiple stakeholders, not shareholders, they still have the exact same imperative that they need to make a surplus. Otherwise, they'll eventually stop working. Um, The difference is that that they have a clear purpose and mission and their goal should be to achieve that mission and then shut up shop. So they should be a self-fulfilling loop. That's part of the challenge, right? Because that is they, the challenge. they take on their own. They have uh, boards as well, and boards don't like to be told, um, you know, you no longer have this yeah. company, this empire to run. I, but, I think the other challenge yeah. can be that the, you know, if you think the cleanness sometimes of a business is if the customer's happy that's receiving the product or service, they'll pay more. And yeah. there's, a, there's yeah. a sort of virtuous cycle. Yeah. What I saw the tension sometimes is when the people that are paying for it in a nonprofit are different to the beneficiaries themselves. Yes, so, that, is, that is a clear, like, um, yeah, there's there's definitely some like a nonlinear relationships there that make things complicated, the multifactorial sort of relationships, and you know that that is hard. But but I think you know we all have choices to make, and from what I've seen um, at the moment, it just looks like um, the ball is well and truly in the the corporate's court in terms of you know attracting and retaining talent. And um, yeah, it's not like the sector will need to probably change how it thinks about that yeah. um, in future to, to, to attract the best people. Part of the reason for Humans of Purpose as well, just to say, is to encourage people to explore purposeful work. Mm. So, you know, when people tell me from listening to the podcast they've made a shift from corporates to, you know, not-for-profits or social enterprises and they're, you know, young, talented person, for me that's like, yep, mm. it's great to be here. Mm. That's you know? interesting. And what's next as we steer towards uh, the end zone? You're good at keeping track of time. This is your, your first... Uh... <laughs> uh, I've, I've done this sort of stuff a little bit. What's next? Um, yeah, so as I said, um, like if, we're not, if I'm not getting better at this um, every week, I'll just stop. Um, but I am attracted to symmetrical round lovely numbers and 300 is definitely sort of the goal. So 300. We'll definitely be around to 300 and then we'll see what people say. I mean, you asked me before, you know, who are your fans or like, do you know who your fans are? And like the truth is I would love to have a better relationship um, with my fan, like inverted commas fans or people who like the podcast, but I'm also equally happy them just enjoying it and not telling me. Um, So I'm not someone who needs that approval or that kind of conversation. But the truth is um, I know demographically who the listeners are, Mm. but I don't um, hear from fans often at all. And, you know, sometimes um, in work situations people will say to me, oh, you're the guy who's got the podcast. And they'll be like, all right, well, there's one. But, um, you know, unless someone tells me they listen to the podcast, I would have no idea who they are. Is it Um, weird to have this in many ways quite important relationship, I would think, or influential relationship with this abstract audience that you don't you don't know individually, yeah. Like, what does that feel like? I, I don't really think about it much. I mean, I, I think for me, I just do what I've been doing for a long time and just keep doing it. I mean, there's a certain like uh, enjoyment of just doing what you do routinely, yeah. Like because you've been doing it for a long time, so it, I just go through the same process every week of trying to book someone interesting, yeah. 
you know, do a bit of planning, get them in, have the conversation. And then for me, this is my creative outlet. I'm not very good at drawing or painting or watercolours or mm. anything like that. Um, I'm not great at reading. So th- this is sort of where I push myself into that creative space mm. um, and that's what I enjoy doing. So I think, um, yeah, in a, in a really selfish way, you always think about the audience in how you do a podcast and try and steer into interesting areas. But it's also going to be the case that, um, like people will either find what I'm interested in interesting or they won't. Mm. And so the people who find the things that I like to ask about interesting will listen and become the audience and others who don't think I ask the right questions will, you know, respectfully retreat and that's that's good. So you'll just keep doing you? Yeah, keep doing me. I ask for feedback all the time. I do a survey every year so I do like to know, you know, what am I getting right and what am I getting wrong but, you know, um, as with most things, you know, you don't get such rich feedback. It's normally like, yeah, you're doing good or this sucks. So, uh, you know, there's not a lot to work with there. But, As a lecturer, um, I know if I, we get these student <laughs> feedback things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what it's like. So if anyone was to tell me what I could do better or how to change, I'd be more than happy to listen. I might not agree or do it, but um, I'm, I love Got feedback. That. I love getting feedback. Yep. So. Well, onwards to episode 300. Mate, thank you so much for joining me and for being on the other side of the mic. That's fun. Yeah. Anytime. Awesome. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products, or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.